This podcast includes explicit language and situations. It is intended for adults 18 years of age and older. These thoughts and opinions are those not of any specific group, employer, or individual. Listener discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Kelly Dollinger. All right, welcome everyone back to season one of Behind the Yard Sign. This is our second episode, and we're going to be talking about what is on everyone's minds, which is COVID. And so it's so crazy. Justin and I and the rest of our leadership team have been working so hard. Every single day is an adventure, Um, not just in small business, but in real estate too. So Justin, why don't you start us out and jump into like how we're still even open? Well, it wouldn't really appear that homestaging would be considered an essential business, considering that all we do is like make houses pretty. That's about it. And on the surface, I think that that's absolutely true. The state of California, the state of Oregon, both deemed us essential right off the bat because they considered us to be like movers. A mover is very important in a situation like this because people need to be able to shelter mm-hmm. in place. And so getting furniture from one place to another into a house that somebody can shelter is super important. And both California and Oregon figured that out from the beginning. The state of Washington, though, <laughs> was a little confused. They came out and they said the entire real estate industry is not necessary. People do not need housing during this thing. And they shut everybody down for a total of, I think, like 48 hours. The real estate industry in Washington was shut down. There was like no viewings, no lock boxes. The MLS like shut it down. And then 48 hours later, they came back and they were like, there's 3000 transactions in the state of Washington that are currently running right now. We need to be able to close those transactions out. So they came back and they said, you can destage houses. You can finish up the transactions that you're having, but you can't start any new projects. And 36 hours after that, they came back and they were like, there are a bunch of people who have sold their houses that don't have anywhere to live. We're forcing those people into hotels, which is not good. We need to get people into these new houses. They opened up real estate again and they said, you can have two people on the job site at any given time, no more than that, but you have to resume services. It's not that you're not essential. It's that you are now mandatory. You have to work. And it threw the entire industry into chaos. There came to like these just huge moral talks about what's right and what's wrong that didn't happen at all in Oregon and California because the communication was so Mm -hmm. clear, so precise that in Washington, they flip-flop people and everybody's like head was turned upside down. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. And huge fights in the real estate industry, people being like, we shouldn't be lifting houses and we should be listing houses. I got a ton of phone calls, a lot of people asking my opinion on what we're supposed to be doing. The two phone calls that I got that made a difference to me, one was a client here in Portland. She called me up and she said, my real estate agent is refusing to list my house because her company said that she can't list during COVID-19. And so I've lost my real estate agent along with my home stager. I need to sell my house and I need a home stager. And I said, okay, cool. What's going on? And she's like, well, I just, I need to make this super clear to you. I don't want to sell my house. I have to sell my house. And all of a sudden, like, boom, in my head, I was like, I sit in this place of privilege where I have a safe place to sleep every night. Nobody's beating me up or hurting me emotionally. I have food. I'm, I live in this place where I don't have to sell my house right now, but not everybody has that condition. And it's our job as service provider to provide that service to these people. The second phone call was from an employee. I called him up and I called all my employees one by one. And I was like, Hey, are you willing to work if we have to go out and do some work? And he was like, Oh my God, I would love to work. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And he's like, he'd only been with us for two weeks before COVID hit. And he said, I was declined for unemployment because my last employer did not claim me as an employee. I have no source of income right now. And I'm like, can we get you some groceries? What's going on? How can we help you? And he's like, no, 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 I've got credit cards. I'm okay for a little while, but if you're going to call me back in, it's going to make my life a whole lot easier. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. So it came down to me that was like, the state is telling me that I'm supposed to work. I have clients that need my services and I have employees who need money. And I have this opportunity as a small business owner to provide all of those things if I can do it so safely. We basically just came back. We re-implemented all of our cleaning programs and all of our PPE programs, which is the personal protective equipment, yeah. face masks and gloves, and got everybody back to work again. We started on Monday with everybody full-time back to work and we are yeah, busy. Yeah, I Holy know. Cow. It's insane. <laughs> and so it did take us such a long time. And just like you said, we were getting a lot of different feedback, but we were also battling with each other. This was nothing about COVID and the pandemic and staying open, whether it was for the safety of clients, staff, ourselves, anything has been cut and dry. It's all been very, I mean, you can see it on the news. As crazy as the news is, the same like moral, ethical, financial, and public health conversations and debates occurred within the four of us in leadership positions at Spade and Archer too, because we want everyone to be safe. And after, if safety isn't prioritized first, nothing 
nothing else really matters. So right. luckily for you, luckily for the company, luckily for us, you're plugged into an organization called Entrepreneur's Organization. EO. Yeah, EO. Yes. And you had been getting kind of information from people from Asia who had been dealing with this for a while. So we had been implementing safety protocols for jobs before anyone was even shut down. So we're talking about, you know, scrubbing down surfaces, um, disinfecting doorknobs, lock boxes, social distancing. We're no longer, you know, meeting clients in person where our process now is completely touchless. And so why don't we talk a little bit about how we changed our business kind of on a dime to accommodate um, these safety protocols, which now aren't just for the pandemic, but will probably be the new normal for the foreseeable future. A lot of this comes down to what I learned from being in EO is that a lot of people are coming to me and I will make a decision or we'll make a decision together. And somebody will come to me and they'll say, I don't think that's a good decision. And I keep saying over and over again, there are no good decisions in this pandemic. It's like the slightly less terrible decision to make. There's nothing that anybody's doing during this process that's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Nobody is pleased. And I mean, at this point, we're seeing like people coming out and protesting. Yeah. And we're seeing everybody is just mad and angry, expecting that this is supposed to be like a good thing. And what it comes down to is that like, there's nothing good here. There's the only thing we can do is we can have grace. We have patience with each other. There was one thing that happened really well for us in particular. It's that we started working with a company called Rarebrain. This guy named Gower Idris became a, a consultant of ours. He's a guy who basically helps companies run more efficiently. And he's great. We we started meeting with him last Thanksgiving and we started looking at ways to make our company more efficient. And he talked about taking our service that we have and making it into a product. So it's called productization of a service. And through right. that, we developed this thing called instant pricing, where you can go onto our website and type in a couple things about your project. And 10 seconds later, it spits out a price. Now, before that, we always would go visit a job site, write up a proposal, send it to you within 24 hours. It took about a week or so to get a number from us. Now it takes less than five minutes. Now, it just so happens that I was just returning back from a trip a week before the COVID-19 lockdown happened. And it was that week that we launched instant pricing. And so instant pricing came out the same day that the lockdown came out. And we were like, oh, by the way, we can't go and visit your site because we can't do anything that has contact right. with you. And we also have this thing called instant pricing. Well, Kelly, <laughs> you turned on a dime and you were like, oh man, we need to remessage this thing. And you were like, we have to change the name of this thing. So why don't you why don't you talk about like what you did with sure. that? Sure, we had been working on this instant pricing concept, basically just as for me, a normal marketing exercise, which is I love hearing what clients have to say about what we're offering, how we're offering it, how we're doing it, what our process is, how it can be better, right? Like that's just, listen, listening is great marketing. It's a precursor to great marketing is listening. Really, it was just we were super excited to put this out because we we're like, Oh, what an awesome client solution. This is so great. We're so excited. And then we're like, Oh, my God, this is no longer exciting as much as it is a really somber time. So like, we couldn't even really express our excitement about this thing we've been working on for weeks and weeks and weeks and it put a ton of time into mostly you in terms of just designing it, the tech side of it, making it all happen. There's a reason why no other company is doing it. It's because it's hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard, freaking yeah. hard. And we're just really lucky that we have the resources to have figured it out. You know, we were really pumped about it and we were, you know, we talked about like how we're going to roll it out and all these things that of course went completely out the window. And so we moved into really crisis communications, which is what everyone's doing, whether or not like if you're in real estate anywhere and you've been communicating at all about COVID or your place on it or how you're coming down on it, you're doing crisis communications. So congratulations. <laughs> Isn't that your entire background too? Sure. Like well, communication. Crisis yeah. Stuff? I mean, um, I um, worked in professional politics for 10 years and so it's all different kinds of things, but I, for a long time worked doing federal work. So I'm doing a lot more reputation brand management, organizational communications management, not so much promotion as you would say for like a small business or a small company. So doing Doing crisis communications and putting out fires and being able to speak to like constituents versus customers is a little bit different, but yeah. I don't think our listener knows that you were the governor of Minnesota oh, for two and a half stop. months, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, I'm definitely, even now still, I'm still, I still prefer to be the person behind the person. You know what I mean? Like I'm the person behind Spain Archer. Even You're like a, a bureaucrat, <laughs> right? You're a career uh, government person. Yeah. And that's somehow what I was... you ended up at a home staging company in Portland, Oregon. 
Uh, yeah, if you've got any questions about that, so do a lot of people. So it's it's a good story, yeah. you know, maybe some less uh, crises, a little more cocktails for that story. But um, <laughs> but yeah, totally. So it, it, it was definitely an exercise to be like, whoa, okay, there's no planning here. This, this is what about it felt like politics was like, you work in politics, you work in the government, every single day is going to be super different. And you just kind of get used to that. And it's not so much the same with a smaller business or in real estate. It's kind of the same kind of flow. You're used to the ebb and flow of it. But the pandemic plus a new product for us was just like a whole lot of craziness for, you know, a home staging company. So definitely I would say the first thing for us in terms of messaging was being really informed. You can't message correctly if you don't know what's going on. So like it took us a freaking hot minute just to figure out what the regulations were, just like you described. Washington was doing one thing, then we're doing something else and we had to stay on it minute to minute. I remember us, we were in the middle of a conversation. One of the new regulations for Washington had rolled out right that second and we're all like on the phone, like debating on what it meant or, okay, well, let's confirm this with somebody else to make sure this isn't just from one source. You know, like all of that is really unusual in our industry to go like breaking news. <laughs> That's not something we normally deal with. Getting the facts was really important first. And then second was, first of all, understanding what our brand is. And our brand is we care a lot about our customers and our clients. And so many of them are reoccurring agents that come to us and trust us enough to bring us their clients. And of course we care about our staff. So it was very easy for me to put ourselves in a position of safety comes first. Nothing else matters after that. That's the message all the time. So then as we move through more crisis communications and we got to communicate about all these things in our company that we have to offer that keep our process touchless, that we have instant pricing now, and we're going to do home visits, site visits, instead of these consults we used to do, which was more collaborative in person. Um, now we're going to go, we're going to handle and get all the information that we need and get the client all the information that they need, but in a way where we're not getting together physically. And then we're going to come and stage your house and we're also going to destage your house and you're never going to see us in person. We're social distancing. We're disinfecting all the things and being really transparent about all the different steps that we're doing to keep ourselves safe, our family safe, our clients safe, their families safe. And we are compliant with all three states, Oregon, Washington, California in their regulations, even if it's up to the minute. So say messaging and communications and crisis communications and communicating how our brand, our company is handling the crisis in a confident way. While things are changing, we all all made these decisions together as leadership to move forward very confidently. And I think that a lot of just based on the feedback we got, people saw us doing this and saw us kind of like as a leader in our little circles inside real estate, just because we had checked all the boxes, safety, getting our facts straight, making sure we were compliant, getting on board with our clients and our staff and making sure everyone wanted to do this work. And the state was telling us we were allowed. The state was telling us we had to do it. Our employees wanted to do the work and our clients wanted us to get the work done. So that's where we're at with messaging. The word, the word of the day went from instant to touch us. Yes, exactly. And it wasn't so much that it was fast. It was that we could do it without getting anybody sick. And that's really been our biggest thing. And, you know, we don't want to make anybody sick. And what's been crazy about it is that we still get people who are contacting us and saying, okay, well, I'll meet you on the job site. And we're like, actually... During yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic, we're asking that we just are allowed to, to go to the house without anybody else. And it's been a little bit of a tough concept for some people to grab. They're like, no, I need to be there with you. And I'm like, no. You yeah, really there's don't. some coaching it's, that it's goes along okay. with it. Like our process has changed yeah. and we're so unlike other home stagers and have been. You know, we've had the guaranteed program for a long time, which is our pay at closing program that nobody else has. So there's a, so much communication that's required there. Then we offered this new instant pricing, which no one else is doing. And now we have a completely touchless process. That's just like people really have to like, <laughs> come and take notes to work with us because we're introducing so I many keep, things. I keep throwing these things at you that's like, hey, here's something nobody else has I done know. before. Now teach everybody in the world how oh, to do yeah. it. Thanks, Just Kelly. teach everybody in LA, Portland, and Seattle that this completely makes sense. I'm like, okay, let's let's go. We're one Instagram story at a time. <laughs> It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> but it worked out for us. I mean, we are so, I mean, we are not, you know, no one could have prepared yeah. 
for this pandemic situation. We're just so lucky that the listening we were doing to our clients just happened to perfectly overlap with this need because holy smokes, it's really let us stay open and continue operating in a safe way. And a lot of businesses can't. Also, it crazy got people to embrace instant pricing. Whereas I think there may have been some resistance if there wasn't a COVID-19 thing there. I think people have really embraced instant pricing. And right now it's Monday, it's Monday at 2.35 in the afternoon right now. I started receiving instant prices this morning around 8 a.m. We've priced 16 projects today. Before, in really, really good times, between the three offices, we would price somewhere around eight to 10 projects a day. We're halfway through the day, we price 16 projects already today. The prices just fly in. Well, that's so eight to fast. 10 without a global pandemic occurring. That's when right. in yeah. normal life, and we did 16 today because it's easy yeah. and it's and instant. There'll be more. And there'll be more. Absolutely, there will be. I got one at 3.30 in the morning on Sunday morning. I was like, somebody is up and doing instant pricing at 3.30 <laughs> in the morning. And I was like, go, buddy, right on. Good job. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things happening. We're just r- really freaking lucky. And I'm l- really happy that our brand overall is just really innovative. I mean, we're just really lucky in that sense is that even though you've been open for 10 years, I've only been with you for a year, but you've been operating in Portland for 10. I don't know. I don't know how I operated with that. Oh, one. shush. How, how did we do this before oh, you shush, got shush, here? shush, 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 <laughs> shush. Well, you guys being innovative has nothing to do with me. I mean, you guys, this has been a core part of the brand for a long time and that you have no interest in doing and being like everybody else. I think that's important, not just, you know, talking about our place in the home staging industry, but our place in real estate. And I think that that's a really great message is just not feeling comfortable, like looking around and just trying to be like everybody else. I I was watching an episode of Oprah, like way back in the day. Do you remember Phil Donahue? Are you too young for Phil Donahue? No, I remember Phil okay, Donahue. So Phil Donahue was like the talk show yeah. guy before Oprah became the talk show guy, right? So Oprah was doing an interview and somebody asked her if she watches other talk shows. And she said, I used to. I used to watch Phil Donahue because I wanted to be just like him. This is when she saw a small local Chicago right. show. She said, I wanted to be just like Phil Donahue, but... I was filming an episode and I had somebody calling in and Phil Donahue used to say this thing all the time. He would say, is the caller there? And then the caller would start to talk. And Oprah said that she caught herself saying, is the caller there? And she realized at that moment that if she ever wanted to be the best, she had to stop watching other talk shows. I saw that episode and I remembered I used to go on other home stagers websites all the time and I would just beat myself up that their one project looked better than my project or their website was better than mine or they were doing something that didn't involve vintage furniture and they said that vintage furniture was bad and I was killing myself over the fact that I wasn't as good or somebody else was doing something better than me and I was like, you know what, this is it. I went through and I blocked every single other home stager that was out there from my social media feeds I let go of everything. I stopped contacting. I stopped going on websites. I just stopped it. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. If I want to be the best in the world, I have to do it on my own. I can't try to just keep up with the pack if I actually want to run ahead of the pack. My goal is to no longer keep up. I have to be ahead. And so from that moment forward, we started innovating to be different than everybody else. And when anybody ever calls me and says, well, all the other home stagers are doing this, I'm like, well, that's the best reason not to do it then. That's like the best way to get me to not do something. (laughs) This is one of my favorite topics. You know, I know that you and I have had a number of conversations about this, but it's one of my favorite things about marketing because marketing and sales is just good service and good service is just good marketing and sales. So what you're discussing and what we're really focusing on is we're not really paying attention to what everyone else is doing. We're paying more attention to our clients and our customer feedback. And that's kind of what we were in the middle of doing with instant pricing. And the feedback was constantly, we'd get phone calls and ask for a ballpark. Can I have a ballpark? Can I have an estimate? Can I have a quote? Can I have a ballpark? Can I have a ballpark? And it was just like at the time, because of the, the, the menu of our services, it was very difficult to give a price based on a couple of stats over the phone. We had to go see the project, you know, it was just difficult and it was difficult to undo all of that too to figure out how to offer the instant pricing but we did we figured it out because we just kept getting the same feedback so instead of just following what everyone else is doing we listened to our customers and providing customer facing client facing 
concerns and questions and and their wishes and their desires that's the true north when you're marketing and it's just worked out so great for us over and over and over again we've seen especially our pay a close program with guaranteed pricing but also with instant pricing as well and just totally is helping us out with this pandemic holy smokes so anyway without getting into a larger conversation about marketing which i love talking about <laughs> um we will for sure be talking about our own path with covid and the pandemic moving forward in future episodes but this is just the beginning this is just us surviving the first like what couple of weeks and we're bringing back to you what's what's happened but i'm sure um, justin and i will be back to talk about how our business is maturing around the idea of pandemic for one listener out there today's april 20th uh, we are now five weeks into the COVID crisis on the West Coast of the United States. Um, and so that gives a reference. So like if everybody's dead and you're a spacely alien who's now listening to this podcast from Spade Not Sure, <laughs> that gives you a reference of where we are. <laughs> so I would love to introduce to our one listener who's out there a very special person in my life. His name is Todd Shively, and he is the managing broker of Cobalt Banker Bain in Capitol Hill. But before he was a big shot, he was a friend of mine and has been a trusted confidant of mine for years. Every time Baden Archer has tried to disrupt our industry, we've gone to Todd and sat down and bought him lunch just to hear what his insights and thoughts are because he's literally like the smartest guy I know in real estate and has made my life and my business better on a regular basis. So if you would please welcome to the show, Todd Shively. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Todd, we've talked a lot today about uh, COVID-19 and what's going on in the real estate industry. And it's just been kind of craziness, but we're just going to take a break from from COVID-19 for just a minute. Like nobody ever goes to school and like majors in real estate. So how did you get here? Like where did you start off and what was your path of travel? Yeah, everything else was just an interruption basically on my path to real estate. Oddly enough, from the time I was in elementary school, like from the very beginning, I had my eyes on a career in real estate, not just a passion for architecture and a passion for people and a passion for the sort of the sales experience, but really just, I just love the whole thing. So when I was in kindergarten, I read my, the very first book I even remember reading was the story of these two people who had a house to sell and they put it on the market. It was this little gray house and they had some people come by and they said, oh, we really like it, but we don't care for the color. And so they painted it red. And then some new people came by, of course, I don't know what happened to the first buyers, but the new people came by and they said, hey, this is a really great house, but it needs a fence. And so they put in a fence and then, you know, off go those buyers, of course, after they uh, give you the good advice. And then the third party comes along and they say, it's a really lovely house, but it needs some flowers. So the buyers or sellers put some flowers out front. For all of that, of course, the sellers stand back and they look at their house and they go, you know what, this is going to work for us. And they don't sell their house at all. <laughs> I remember I that love story. that there was I... a children's book called My First Sale Fail. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%, actually. And that might be, I should look it up. Maybe that's the name I've been trying to find it. Anyway, so I remember that. And I just remember being fascinated by that whole process. I had a great uncle who was a real estate broker in a town, another town in central Idaho, Twin Falls. And he had his own brokerage. And I always was just so fascinated by him and the whole aura and the presence and the sort of career of it. In the later days of my elementary years, they were they were converting farmland to house to neighborhoods in the area where I grew up. And I would tour through those houses. At that stage of the game in southern Idaho, you could have an open house by just leaving the door unlocked. with new construction. And so on Sundays, I would go and just walk through these houses and climb through the construction. I was just fascinated by the whole thing. For all those years, I kept my eye on it. And then I job shadowed with a real estate broker in junior high on career day. Just loved it. Was fascinated by all of it. And then went to school and then at Pacific Lutheran in Tacoma and then worked at Group Health as a project manager. I worked at several positions for a couple of years there, but lastly, as a project manager in marketing communication. That really lined up with my uh, desires. I loved that company. I loved working there. And then one One day I just kind of woke up and went, hmm, what happened to real estate and that whole thing? And six weeks later, I was a real estate broker out of a job and out of money, but full of ideas 18 years ago. That's awesome. Thank you. This industry is lucky to have you. Um, So normally during this interview process, we would say like, so what keeps you up at night? And we are all uh, probably the most aligned our country has ever been as to what keeps us up at night. So we're just going to ask that COVID-19 question. What are you doing to support your people? What are they looking for from you? How are you helping? Like, what's your plan of action right now? 
primarily focuses around crystal clear communication, providing touchstones for the brokers so that they have a sense of uh, continuity. So we do a lot of meetings. We do our meetings, our broadcast. I ask everybody to get on the video. We do our regular meetings at our regular times. We follow a fairly consistent agenda. We have happy hours three times a week. We were doing them every day and now we're doing them three times a week as people begin to sort of fall into the rhythm of things. We have a couple of additional meetings in the mornings just to be available if somebody wants, if they're working from home and they want to drop in. We're helping people clean up their database, make sure we're getting folks who are not regularly in touch with their clients, in touch with their clients, trying to help them use this time. The, the firm has worked very hard to help people try to steer towards resources for uh, whether it's financial resources or keeping themselves occupied and engaged with ways to grow their business in a time when other people could be shrinking away from it. And also creating clear direction for our clients in terms of understanding the risks of buying or selling a house during a pandemic, which is not something we've had to explain before, and helping them sort of take responsibility for the decisions that they make when they want to go out or into the marketplace or have people come into their home. Lots of communication, lots of clarity. You know, like when important communications go out, they come out as a memo with a headline and a date and the bullet points. And it's not casual. It's really crystal clear. So you can go back and see really plainly the evolution of that. And then this week, you know, it's interesting. I've been broadcasting our our meetings the last few weeks from home from a specific room with a specific backdrop and trying to be very like from the bunker about here we are in the front lines of this thing. And this week I moved back to the office. The office is closed, but I went back to the office for that one hour on, on Tuesday morning to sort of say critical office infrastructure is still operating. We're here to do the things you need to do. You can set an appointment and come in and pick up something and then leave, but all of the work can still get done to the degree that you feel like you can safely do so. I guess my immediate follow-up to that is just because there's we can relate to so much with Spade and Archer and home staging. We're, we're not agents, mm-hmm. but we're still in the same industry and we're yeah. still dealing with the same ethical, moral, public health, financial yeah. questions and yeah. concerns. And we have the facts and we have the regulations and then a whole lot of gray area. And mm-hmm. we've been navigating that just from how we're going to, how we're staying open, the activities we're doing and how we're messaging. How do you help your agents navigate all of that gray area? Do you have guiding principles that you keep? Or is this like you're figuring out on the fly? Like how have you been managing that with I'm sure your people come to you with so many gray area questions? Yeah. And they come with a lot of frustrations about the people who are pushing into the gray, if you will. <laughs> um, I think the general consensus among the folks, at least in my branch, where it was a lockdown's appropriate. A lockdown is is for the health of all people. Let's just get on board with the rules. So there was a quick scramble in the last couple of days. The stay home, stay healthy order came out on a Monday. And by Wednesday night at midnight, everyone was supposed to be home. And so we basically you know, got those memos out. Here's what we expect. Here's the guidelines. Uh, stay home, stay healthy. And for two days, we did that. And then we woke up on a Saturday. And out of, for us, the blue, there was a memo from the governor that said, yes, still that, but also some other things, you know. And then it was wild scramble to figure out where we fit into that, where our partner industry partners fit into that, how the buyers and sellers were going to sort of reopen into that for those that wanted to do it. So our basic philosophy is to be as transparent and conservative in terms of you know what we consider our priorities, which would be the physical safety of each other and the community first. So we are not running in the out into the gray to say, yeah, this is this is business as usual. Let's just find a way to bend all the rules as much as we can. Like it's just not really our our model to do that. So most of our folks are still staying home. Some of our folks haven't left their house in six or seven weeks. That's the one end of the spectrum. And then we have a handful. We've got sixty five licensees in the office that are selling right now. And we've got probably 10% that haven't left their house at all. And we've got about 10% that are out multiple days a week, carefully showing houses. They've got their kits in the car and they've got their hand sanitizer and their gloves and their wipes. And they're doing all the things as rigidly as they can. And what we're asking our sellers to do, and they get to decide whether they want to or not, is to have all buyers that come through fill out a health questionnaire, a travel questionnaire. Where have you been? Who have you been around? How are you feeling today before they cross the threshold? You know, really trying to create enough of a, a sense of structure that people can feel as safe as they can coming into the house. Tough for sellers and buyers, particularly with something that doesn't necessarily manifest with symptoms until you've already been spreading it around. So. Two weeks. Yeah. I agree with you that a message other than safety first like doesn't make sense. And the protocols that you've described are going to be around for a while. Justin and I were just talking about that earlier today. Like yeah. this isn't something like shelter in place is going yeah. to get lifted and all of these protocols yeah. are going yeah. to go out the window. And these is This is the 
new yeah. normal. And it's a good, I think everyone's behavior is going to be affected for a long time. For You know, it's, I miss the hugs the most. I hope that the, you know, the handshakes come back last, whatever, but I hope we get to hugging. <laughs> I do not need to go back to that elbow bump thing one bit at all. That never, like, that was the most awkward thing. I'm good with just a friendly wave, but for the folks that I, that I know, I really miss being, having that physical contact, but I think we'll see a slide away from that. We'll be more conscientious in a lot of ways when we get done with this in terms of how we allow the public into our spaces and engage in public space, I think. We're operating in three states in California, Oregon, and Washington. I think you guys are Oregon and Washington, right? Yeah. Coldwell Banker, of course, internationally. Everywhere. Coldwell Banker, yeah. Bain, as in the, the Bain brand is uh, Bend, Oregon to Bellingham. We felt like Oregon, from our point of view, handled the stay-at-home order really well. They didn't say who was essential and who wasn't essential. They put a, te- a type form on their mm-hmm. website that said, answer these questions. We'll tell you if you should be operating or not. Washington came out and they were like, you are not essential. Stay home, real estate. And then they were like, you're halfway essential, uh, you know, two days later. And then 36 hours later, like, you have to operate. I found that in Washington, people were having these gigantic moral dilemmas because everybody had resolved themselves to we are not essential our job is to stay at home and and be safe and then all of a sudden they were told you were supposed to work and it was really polarized did you guys have like gigantic amounts of discussions of what you should and should not be doing like how did that pull out for you yeah, kind of all of that. That was definitely, a, it was a complicated time because there's the Northwest MLS, which is the body that, the, you know, the sort of central database that we, that most of the uh, real estate brokers, I should say, in Washington are a member of. That's a private organization that people pay dues and, and into. And then they set sort of the rules based on what that organizational standard will be. Then there's the Washington Realtors and Seattle King County Realtors, sort of with their own overlay and interpretation of those orders. And then there's the governor's intention. And Washington Realtors and the Northwest MLS have worked very closely on this. I should mention that I'm on, I am a director on the board for Washington Realtors and Seattle King County Realtors, but have no direct engagement that that all happens through our legislative arm uh, where those conversations are happening directly between Washington Realtors, uh, Northwest MLS and the governor's office who did assign a liaison to real estate to say, okay, let's try to navigate this. My understanding of the intention of Washington Realtors when they were speaking to the governor's office before and right after the stay home, stay healthy order was there are somewhere between 15 and 17,000 pending transactions in the state of Washington. And there are certain things that have to happen in order for us to close within the generally understood parameters of this process. People need to be able to do a walkthrough, make sure inspections, the inspection items are repaired. Maybe they need to just got into contract and need to actually have an inspection. If we get to the end of the transaction, we're ready to close and they can't get their furniture moved out. Where does that leave us. So the good fight was fought, I think, to say with pending sale, we should probably try to facilitate wrapping these things up. The expectation been we're just going to go on this sort of slow curve until we sort of flatten as everything gets closed. Let's get all the stuff done and then we'll just kind of set. And when the order came out, it looked a little bit different in that it included language saying that you would still be able to physically go to a house as long as you followed basic criteria, two people at a time, stay at least six feet away, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that language was open enough that it could be interpreted <laughs> to say, go back and sh- you know show houses again. And so you saw this spectrum of folks who were like, this is terrible. This goes against the idea of keeping the community safe. This is a health hazard. And the other folks saying, great news. We are back open for business. Let's start selling houses again. There was a lot of tension between those parties. And of course, that's a statewide thing. So you think about the personality differences in King County, Snohomish, Whatcom, or, you know, east of the mountains and how differently people vote around social issues, presidential elections, how they feel about states' rights, all of those things wrapped into one. And they're trying to address this thing for millions of people. Complicated stuff. And the feelings range a lot. And you sort of just have to say, let's do the everything we can within the smallest box possible to facilitate for the needs of the greater good. It's, uh, it is definitely challenging out there for sure. Um, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to play a game that we like to call what the, (laughs) (laughs) what the fun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and this, and and, you know, I know that this COVID thing is like, it's all we can talk about right now, but I feel like everyone's going to just need a little bit of a break to like get away from it. So we're going to talk more about like stuff that you've seen out there. Uh, what has been the thing during the COVID response that somebody has come to you with and they said, this is what I want to do. And it made you just say, what the Yeah. I'm not sure I would call it an absolute what the 
but we've had people who there's no open houses allowed. The open houses were the first thing to go. The Northwest MLS just if you they just turned off the option, which is pretty impressive actually. Just flip a switch and then you can't schedule them, right? They just don't show up. And so even if you were to hold an open house, it would literally be anybody that happened to drive past the house and see you had a sign out in front, which we quickly said would would also not work. But as a workaround, what people have been trying to do is to say no open houses, but I will be there from one p.m. until 4 p.m. for walk-in appointments, right? So you can stop by the house. I'll be there. It looks <laughs> like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. It looks an awful lot right. like an open house with a turnstile. Like, That's an open sure, house, yeah. You know, and I'm like, well, if you're going to technically be scheduling an appointment, like call a real estate broker, call a realtor and have them show you the house because I can't represent you in this process anyway. I already represent the seller. So just get somebody else to come and show it to you at any time you want. All showings right now have to be scheduled. That's the law. They have to be scheduled in advance and they have to be two people and you have to stay six feet apart and blah, blah, blah. So like the idea that you're just going to say, I'm just going to conveniently be here with the door open, try to stay far away and moderating that, having people standing out in a line, like it just... It really, it, it, to me, just flies in the face of everything we're trying to accomplish here. I heard, I read a story on Facebook. They were talking about how the MLS, I don't know which MLS this was, but it wasn't MLS. They were trying to figure out how key exchanges would happen because it requires oh, yeah. more than two people to be together to do a yeah. key exchange. And the MLS's yeah. written response back to the agent was, well, if you happen to just be out for a walk at the time that the key exchange is supposed to happen and you just <laughs> yeah, happen to yeah. be there and you have, and I was like, you actually wrote that I down. Know. What the f-? <laughs> I, I had this, somebody was like, well, here's the, here's the best solution. This is really early on when we weren't sure how movement was even going to look. And th- th- there was somehow going to, the controls are going to be so strict that it was going to be like a police state. Yeah. Like you just, you must go straight from your house to the grocery store and back again. I'm like, well, go to the grocery store, find the shelf where the toilet paper is supposed to be, leave the key on the shelf. And then, and then the other broker would come along behind and like, <laughs> take the key off the shelf. It would be really easy to find because there would be no toilet paper and there's plenty of room to keys there. So hysterical. But that was an actual question that when it was on full lockdown, a seller could go to their own home and leave a key somewhere and a buyer could go. But that's not the way that we handle these things generally. And there's nobody there to answer questions. And the, you know, the parties don't generally come into contact with each other and they weren't supposed to. And the facilitation of those things is really what we were trying to accomplish with getting some of this loosened up a little bit. And it's just kind of gotten bigger than expected, but the market remains absolutely ridiculously robust for all of that. Oh yeah. We've got, you know, of our guaranteeing projects, I think we have something like 50 of them and all but two are pending right now. I mean, it's just going, it's just going. So as a real estate agent, real estate agents are kind and you sold real estate forever and ever and ever. Now you're managing real estate agents. Often you guys are like basically a concierge of real estate for your clients. And they ask you to do all kinds of things for you from, you know, take a dog out for a walk to, to come and vacuum my floor or whatever. What is the thing that a client asked you to do for them that you were like, what? Uh, one of them, one of those involved an awful lot of work around the house. And this is the, one of the challenges when you do real estate with friends and you don't really know how to say no. And that I was like, well, am I throwing you a bone to have you represent my house? I'm like, no, you're not. I'm actually a really successful real estate broker and I do super great work. And I've got a whole like, <laughs> no, but like, sure. Okay. And like not being able to say no. And like literally at the house, like moving furniture, painting things like there's, there's like a part of it. It's like just providing like service as another thing to spend like a week at someone's house actually doing the work that a professional should be doing. And I'm highly incompetent at doing anyway. Like you do not want me painting your house, by the way. It wasn't outrageous, but it was just like really inappropriate. Like this is definitely something you should be paying a professional to do. And I am there like with the roller, with the paint, doing all the work for days at a time, just because I couldn't figure out how to say no. You'll learn. Yeah. And like, and people are not afraid to ask, right? They're yeah, like, what's the sure. hurt in asking? Because the right. worst the thing you can say is no. Ask, so, the hurt is not yeah. knowing how to say no. Absolutely. Okay. So what was the most, what the f- offer you ever got? When somebody's buying a house, you got an offer or a request from another agent during that transaction. Can I turn that around slightly to what the, the most up thing I had to do to try to put a deal together was? Yes. Yes, please. (laughs) 
which is really this. So I was helping these buyers in a multiple offer situation and the seller, great guy, group personality, fairly well-known local DJ, actually. We were presenting the offers in person. The offer presentation was of all places, coincidentally, in my office. It was all the that person's uh, listing broker was a broker in our office. So it was a very, very good offer. And there was another offer from like a neighbor a couple doors down that they were also very tempted to take. They were basically in line with each other. And, you know, I'm in the office and kind of in and out of the conference room trying to maneuver this thing together, but we can't seem to find terms that are enough to push it over the over the limit. So the seller looks across the table from me. And again, I'm here representing the buyers. And I'm really like, I've given everything I can in terms of what I think would be a reasonable thing. Finally looks at me and says, okay, here's the thing. We'll take your client's offer, but you have to get up on this table and dance. What? <laughs> and I got up in the middle of a glass conference room in my office with the seller and the wife and the broker and danced on the table. Now, I think he thought I was going to sort of dance like as if I was in a club. And I basically did some sort of weird modified tap routine, right? Which, and he was like, <laughs> huh, okay. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was like, hello, my honey. Hello, my darling. You know, like I was like, wanted- I don't know where my head was. It did not go to uh, any... Uh, and they wanted Chippendales and you gave yeah. them like Shirley yeah, Temple. Exactly That's exactly so right. Awesome. So I don't think it was quite as satisfying as you'd hoped, but uh, it did get the deal put together, which was really lovely. But uh, interesting part of that story is my uh, some other clients of mine knew about that story when I sold their house several years later. We were reviewing offers. We got through the offers and we had picked the winning offer. They, I'm like, well, it looks like we're all done. I'm sitting at the conference room table, same conference room, same office. And they're like, awesome. And they got up on their chairs, got onto the table and danced (laughs) to sort of return the favor. And they brought a bunch of $100 bills and they just like made it rain $100 bills and danced for me because they wanted Fantastic. to like take on that moment and sort of reclaim that for me, which was super, super sweet. I love that they did the dancing and yeah, the making yeah, it rain they at did the same all the time. Things, yeah, yeah. You know, they were like, I want to go to that strip club, dude, where the strippers yeah, just throw money at throw me money the whole back time. At you. Yeah, the longer you sit there, the more you <laughs> they put it right in front of you there. Yeah. The sad part is that people throw money at me to put my clothes back yeah, on. They're like, yeah, enough, enough. Not as sexy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> it's a living. And one of the things that we talk about as Fade and Archer all the time is the the crazy that we find in people's houses. Like you, you. It's so amazing what people will leave out or leave behind when they know that other service providers are coming into their mm-hmm. home. What is the most what the thing that you have found in a house as you're walking through? You know, it's funny because a lot of times the things that you know the the things you would expect the uh, unmentionables that get left next to the bed or you know something you know the racy lingerie or whatever you know like the little things that are just like people still living in the house and they're living their life and they kind of just forget to do something. And you see those kind of things all the time. Back in the days of DVDs, somebody would leave a DVD out on the coffee table that was probably not for uh, general, you know, consumption. That just happens because people are living their lives and they're not thinking it through. But the weirdest thing, like we went into a house and it was this just sort of older home and upstairs, like a sort of a converted attic space that had like really just disgusting carpet. And then there was like uh, a rope tied to a big bolt on the ceiling. And it wasn't really clear what the utility could have possibly been and it was kind of frayed at the end and it very much looked like somebody might have been tied to it for a period of time it was just like this is really really mysterious and it was really creepy and that's not just something that you couldn't have dealt with like you that you didn't forget that you didn't put that up this morning and forget it when you went to you know take a phone call like you intentionally left that behind and nobody i mean nobody so along the line said we should take that out i was walking through a house once and one of the bedrooms had a deadbolt on it but the deadbolt was from the hallway and so somebody was put into that room and the deadbolt was then thrown behind them and i'm like what is going on (laughs) here what is happening and the other super duper creepy thing that we saw is that once up in the attic you know the unfinished Uh attic and it's just like you know the beams and all that was a children's swing that had been like a little little kid swing swing yeah and it was like Mm. oh so creepy like i'm where where's the ouija board like this like you know a ghost child in here yeah uh discordant <laughs> ring around the rosy like bah, 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 yes. like in the background yes. yeah <laughs> Kelly, you got anything else for Todd? I would say, especially these days, feedback is all over the place. And so what's the most fucked up thing a client's ever said to you 
it's like, I feel like we could write a novel with the things that people say and do. And then there's this part of me, I think that just like compartmentalizes it and takes those things away because I cannot hold on to them. Absolutely. Right. Uh, we had a, a client that um, didn't like our price. Like our price was, let's say it was a thousand dollars. And he's like, well, I want it to be 500. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. It's a thousand dollars. And they went online and wrote a Yelp review and said that our product wasn't custom because we wouldn't make our price what he wanted it to be. Like, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> what no, are you talking that's, about? That's not true at all. That is absolutely not true. <laughs> mm, that's not really how it works, sweetheart. Todd Shively, you have been such a great supporter of Spade and Archer over the years. I really amazing. appreciate you. You have sure. been promoted and brought up uh, through the ranks at Cobalt banker bane because clearly you are such a flipping superstar and we are so happy to have you on our team we're so happy to have an affinity program with cobalt banker bane and much of that is due to your effort and we so appreciate you being a part of our lives well it's my pleasure i am just the product of the mentorship i've received through this company and it's so exciting to continue to be uh, in a position of leadership now and able to continue influencing folks with the great bane way Awesome. So as we go on, can we have you back on behind the yard sign in the future? Sure. Yeah. And, and what that. I'll do is I'll start journaling so that I can keep track of all the little things because it's like any given day. I feel like we've got you the story. Your, your, your what the journal? Yeah, my journal. It's, it's Here's actually, what happened today. This is a good reason to get that started, you know? <laughs> Um, if anybody else wants to be a guest on Behind the Yard Sign and you already have your What the F*** Journal put together, uh, reach out to us. You can find us at spade-archer.com. We'd love to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time, Todd. Thanks for your time, you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, Todd. Justin, we've already talked a little bit about COVID, what happened in our business and like the things, the, the moving pieces and the decisions we had to make and the regulations and all of that. And we got to hear a little bit from Todd Shively from... Mm, the guy's a prince, isn't he? He is so amazing. I really, really so, appreciated so her, his perspective. Yeah. But then the larger question is outside of maybe just real estate, you know, home staging in our normal life is just like, we wanted to talk a little bit about, I think it's been really fascinating to look into what our life has felt like and the anxieties we carry and the fun we've had, you know, having to stay home more and where we're really struggling and what's easy and what's hard and how different it is. And you used to be on the road all the time and now you're just grounded with your family. So like, this is more of like a little like philosophical Dr. Phil conversation, but like the pandemic is scary. And so just talking about real life stuff now that it suddenly stopped, like what has it been like for you? You're one of the busiest, most energetic people I know. And I can't even imagine what it must be like for you to be quarantined. My poor husband. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> I, I've taken a couple of, I, I, I'm a big rule follower. So I do a lot better if I make rules for myself and I try to follow those rules during things. So there's been a couple of them. We talked about one already. There are no good answers. There are only slightly less the answers mm -hmm, out there. Mm -hmm. So that's really a big one for me. Number two actually came from, came from Todd Shively. We had a client that was pretty upset that we had staged a house. And we were charging rent on it during the 48 hours that Washington State was closed down. And Todd was actually brilliant. He came back and he said, you know, we all need a little bit of grace right now. Yeah. And everybody is having, you know, all of the feels, all of the emotions. And periodically people around me have melted down. I've melted down. Like I've even cried. I, I, I like a good cry every once in a while. And when I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to allow the people around me to have the space and I hate the fact that this rhymes and I apologize and the grace in which to do that and sometimes like my husband was in a bad mood yesterday he had a dream that Hillary Swank got mad at him <laughs> for selling our old house and it put him in a funk like all day long and I was like honey is it okay can I just leave you alone all day he's like yes that would be great yeah. and I was like fantastic we all need a little bit of space we all need a little bit of grace and then the third one is there's no right way to feel right now Every day is a roller coaster of emotions. You are, you know, super excited that your business is still alive, and then you're super upset because a friend of yours is sick, and then you're scared because you don't want to go outside and go grocery shopping. And like, there's so much stuff that it's okay just to feel whatever you're feeling, and there is no right way to feel right now. That's really been my yeah. big set of rules. I'm a high emotions person. We know this. I got I got all the feels all the time about everything. 
So you're experiencing it yourself, but then you're also re-experiencing it through everybody else. So like, I'll be okay for a day or, or whatever. And, and then, but then my friends are, or my family are really suffering. My, you know, my sister has toddlers at home. My girlfriend who already was having marital struggles is now in a freaking quarantine with her spouse. and They want to kill each other. I've got a girlfriend, a really good girlfriend who works in the restaurant industry in LA. Talk about an industry that is absolutely tanking right now. And it's not really on anyone's minds because we're not even going to go to restaurants for a while like people are suffering everywhere so it's not just even about our personal experience but like everybody else we know is suffering too it's just like how do we process and hold space for those emotions when our previous existence was so over the top busy with distractions that we were able to really put tough feelings and tough emotions on the back burner we've talked a lot about I, I've talked a lot in my lifetime in this past couple of years about the idea of flop opportunities, yeah. of finding an opportunity in a flop. And you know, I went through uh, an early onset dementia diagnosis for about 18 months that was hanging over my head and really trying to look for opportunities in that flop. It was subsequently, I was told that that was not a good diagnosis and that I actually am going to probably be fine, but really started to try to look at where we can find our opportunities and our failures. And the thing that I'm looking at most right now is that COVID-19 is like, this giant reset button. And as we come out of COVID, many of us who sit in a place of privilege like you and I do, um, you know, people who have good housing and and good jobs and we're white, you know, and have good educations, things like that. We are faced with this amazing opportunity that we get to redefine what our lives look like. Do you want to travel three quarters of your life anymore? Do you want to sleep in a hotel room half the time? Are you interested in the job that you're still doing at this point? I mean, there's going to be a giant reshuffling of lives in the places that we sit. We have these amazing opportunities to redefine how our lives look at this point. I'm starting to think about what that looks like for me, because I don't know if I want to go back to scheduling coffee dates uh, 14 weeks out. Right. I don't know if that's what I want my life to look like I anymore. Know. You know, you know, what about you? What do you see in terms of coming out of this? What What's your, what are your opportunities? It's so funny because similar to you, I'm really busy or have been really busy. I have two side businesses. I work full time. If I'm not intellectually stimulated, I get really bored. So like me and my girlfriends right now, in addition to everything else I've got going on, we're learning how to invest right now because that's just seems like the most natural thing to do. I'm getting really clear on what fuels me up and what's distraction. Post lockdown, am I going to go ahead and go do like the three social engagements I know normally do. I'll finish work. I'll go to bar and then I'll like three social engagements back to back and go to bed at 11. That to me sounds like the most exhausting way to live. And that was my old life like six weeks ago. And and, and every day, and every day right? I was really busy. Um, I barely lived in my own house. Probably one of my favorite things I'm doing right now is I'm just working on my own house and just making it really comfortable. I bought a hammock. It's out on my porch. It's lovely. I love being on my porch. Your house now. is really cute, by the way. Thanks. I see your little artwork behind you. It's like six foot five. It's beautiful. Yeah, I really (laughs) like my house now. I'm, you know, my kind of habits, you know, traveling a lot. I was definitely always that girl that just came home, flopped open the suitcase and just like lived out of it for like a week until it got real bad and then just ended up having to repack it and leave again. Like I did that all the time. And now I'm just like home. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? I am an introvert because that's how I need to rest. I really thrive one-on-one or in small groups. I yeah. love quality time in small amounts and I can absolutely turn it on to teach. That's what I do for most of one of my businesses. And I teach for Spade and Nurture and present and do whatever. But holy crap, do I feel exhausted after that. It strikes me that like more than anybody else that I know, you are like the ultimate serial monogamist. Whereas like you will have a one-on-one conversation with this person and then a one-on-one conversation with this person. And then one like you, yep. you go through your entire day having one-on-one conversations. And by the time you're done, you've had, you know, 35 one-on-ones and it's amazing how you're able to pack that all into a day. But it also is really amazing to me that at the same time, you still consider yourself an introvert. Yeah. Whereas like for me, if I were an introvert, it would be really bad at it because I lived alone for almost 18 months my entire life. So 18 months of my life, I lived alone. I would come home, go sleep on my couch for four hours, wake up, eat dinner, go to the gym, go home and go to bed. That was my entire night every night. Being alone exhausts me. I don't know how the hell my husband does it because when I'm with myself... (laughs) 
<laughs> like exhausting. So the fact that you consider yourself an introvert, I think you get some kind of energy from these one-on-ones with people. Maybe you're like a, a half and half in that you need one person, that a large group of people is exhausting to you. How do you do when you're by yourself? Like, do you find that restorative? It depends. Um, I can be okay by myself, but I really prefer like that one-on-one. I don't like, I don't love busy environments. Like if I had to go to a big cocktail party for like, say like a work event or whatever, like I really have to get myself like emotionally prepared to do that level of energy. I think 2.5 milligrams of uh, THC. What is that stuff called? What's marijuana? I I was never a big pothead. I've been stoned three times in my whole life before it was legal. But now whenever I go to a cocktail party, I'm like, if I can just get a little bit stoned, I will not want to stab myself in the ear during this cocktail party. (laughs) It's a lot of energy out. It's super hard. Yeah. Um, And like, you know, I'll go to conferences for work and stuff. And oh my gosh, I don't even like sometimes just being in a room with that many people is draining to me. Not even like being in charge of leading or talking or socializing or anything. Just like being in that space is exhausting for me and so in those environments I definitely need alone time like I know all these different housing situations you have when you go to these big events like I need my own space I need my hotel room I need all of that and so here we are kind of like permanently in that life I do have a quarantine buddy so it's a lot of one-on-one time and that's really where I thrive but I've talked a lot about with my girlfriends as they've kind of realized things for themselves and they're emotionally managing and processing pandemic it's just like a lot of people myself included are really scared to go back to the pace of our previous life kind of like you were saying like you don't even know if you want to go back and travel and it's just like there's anxiety to be home and there's anxiety about people getting sick and yourself getting sick and the finances and a possible recession and all these things there's also anxiety if it were all to disappear and go away and everything was normal tomorrow we'd still be anxious messes because <laughs> right, you're just ex- right. you're exchanging one set for another set of anxieties and i know a lot of people are struggling with that because they don't want to go back to the life that they had just like you said we've have we have the opportunity to examine ourselves. I think it'd be really interesting if our listener is out there, send us an email, info at spade-archer.com. Shoot us a note. Let us know what you think your opportunity is coming out of this COVID-19 failure. What does your life look like? How are you going to make something different in your life? Write to us. Let us know. It'd be great to hear from you. I was really lucky. Probably one of the best things I ever did was I learned very early on the importance of multiple streams of income. I was a recession kid. I had a, I had one of the best jobs you could have in politics in DC as a young undergrad entering the workforce one of the best firms I could possibly work at we had gotten that year we had the company had done all of Obama's ad buys and media spots it was a really exciting time to be in politics but a lot of the clients of that firm were all endowments and so 08 to 09 we lost I think half our clients and so I was laid off with the third of the firm and so what year did you start there I started in July of 08 and then literally watched the economy meltdown like in a day in November and then Obama had gotten elected and then everything just fell apart and it just got continued to get worse months and months and months over the spring of 09 and then eventually everyone was getting laid off and then I think I I was in grad school full-time by then and I applied for a job a day for a year for a year for a year and that time I was still young now I say I got a good job but let me tell you they treat you like they are lucky to have you and you are not really making bank money all right not in DC it's so competitive. So I was, even after layoff, I was in grad school full-time, which was costing me a fortune at GW. I did 20 hours a week at a PAC. I did 20 hours a week at a polling firm. Both. That's a political action committee, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Emily's List is one of the biggest in the country. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was huge and awesome and one at a polling firm. And then I went to school at night and both of those were unpaid. I think one of them gave me a stipend for the Metro. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And then I had two waitressing jobs on the weekends and that was like my recession experience. And I was just like, man, and the level of hustle just to survive in this freaking town. And that was very formative for me. So like the recession we were told was a once in a lifetime event. Well, <laughs> it turns out not so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so now I'm prepared. I'm 34. I think our millennial generation is very skeptical. We don't trust our employers as much. We don't trust job security. We don't trust housing security. We were told by our parents and our grandparents, one of the safest things you could do is to own a home. Well, we learned in 2008, not so much. There's a lot of personal development, personal growth and things you can explore during this time just to to seek safety, whether it's financial safety, relationship safety, 
um, all the things that keep us secure. And maybe it's, you know, I got friends who are learning new languages. I have new friends who are experimenting with new businesses. I've got friends who are processing like divorces and other major life events and kind of using this time in a really supportive way. And I'm trying to do the same thing, knowing that this is formative for all of us. Like what is going to come of this to make us more thoughtful, like global citizens, better voters, more financially secure, better business owners, better employees, you know, like what is going to come of this? That's, I think it's really interesting. I think that there's going to be a lot of new businesses that are going to come yeah. out of this because there's a lot of people who are being laid off. You know, you talked about your recession experience. In my recession experience, I was a general contractor working for a company called Lee Scutcher Lewis in a job that I did not fit in culturally. I, <laughs> I was the odd man out. I was the gay dude in the company. I got laid off and I started Spade and Archer. And Helen Keller has always been a huge influence on my life. My husband gave me a birthday card and in the birthday card it said, a life without risk is nothing. And I mean, here's this woman who's deaf and blind. And she's saying like, hey, if you don't risk it, it's nothing. It's not worth anything. And so I think there's going to be a lot of risk that comes out of this because a lot of people are they're already out of luck. They have no stream of income. So they're gonna have to try to figure out something, which is what I did in 2008. I started a business, I bought a U-Haul truck, and I, I had 57 mattresses in my living room <laughs> during Christmas time. I mean, that's how it all started for me. It turned into spade and archery eventually. The other quote from Helen Keller that always has made a huge difference for me is she once said that security security is a fallacy, that there's no such thing mm -hmm. as security. You know, when you talk about the idea of revenue streams, multiple revenue streams, there's a book by Josh Kaufman called My Personal MBA. And one of the things that Josh Kaufman, it's like 87 lessons on running a business. And one of the things that Josh talks about in that is that the idea of there is more security in multiple streams of revenue than there is in one stream of revenue. Let's just take the example of how I make money versus how you make money. Mm -hmm. You make money because I write you a check every day. Mm -hmm. That's one of your streams of revenue. You also also have multiple streams of revenue with different companies that you run. My stream of revenue is that I have 700 clients and at any given time, one of those clients is paying me something. And if one of them gets hit by a bus, I still have 699 other streams of revenue. Whereas in your situation, in terms of Spade and Archer, if I get hit by a bus, Spade and Archer may not exist anymore. Yeah. So there goes that entire stream. And so with the idea of people saying, oh, you know, our grandparents would always say like, oh, you got to have a good steady government job yeah. and that's going to be secure. And I just, I love that idea that Helen Keller is like security is a fallacy, man. Totally. No matter what you do, you might be afraid of COVID and, you know, worrying, looking at your phone, reading the next twit, twit, <laughs> <laughs> tweets, right? Tweets. Tweet that Donald Trump said and get hit by a bus. There's nothing that tells you that you are safe. You may feel safe, but at any given time, at any moment, it could all end. And so there comes a point where it's like, you know what? A life without risk is nothing and security is a fallacy. So let's go out and make a life that I want for myself. Yeah. I guess my request to us to everybody is to say take a minute look at your life if you're not happy with it now is the right. time this is the best opportunity because there is nothing to lose nothing to lose and we have time yes and there Absolutely. are like twenty thousand e-courses right now discounted go learn something go do something <laughs> whether it's like emotional intelligence or investing or traveling or whatever you want to do or something you know learning how to sew face masks learning something. how to sew what things you yeah. didn't prioritize before chasing these false senses of security as you said or actually creating new security or whatever it is um this is the time this is the opportunity to do it i hope that everyone takes away something from this time not just the next decade or whatever the next global pandemic or recession will occur but for our whole life too well kelly i'm hoping that this is a twice in a lifetime event for yeah. you and that this never happens again. thanks i appreciate that <laughs> you too thank you so much for listening to behind the yard sign it's been an absolute pleasure our guest today was todd shively with coldwell banker bain in seattle if you get a chance to meet that guy take it i'm justin and this is my lovely associate Kellyanne. It is an absolute pleasure uh, having you with us. We'll see you next time. Bye guys. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.